Well, we've talked about this quite a bit over the past few months. We know that wars these days, conflicts in general, are also fought not on, not just on the battlefield, but in cyberspace. Controlling the narrative, selling your story, peddling your story is an important part of any battle plan. So it's no surprise that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, has prompted an effort to sell the Kremlin's version of events. Uh, this may sound familiar. It's NATO's fault. The West is using Ukraine to isolate and punish Russia. Putin had no choice. Ukraine is a fascist state. All of it almost entirely untrue, or at least very to the very least, it blatantly avoids ever mentioning the Ukrainians and all of this and what they want, their own ability to choose their destiny as a nation, as a people. Uh, and the illegal invasion of their country and slaughter of their people, of course. So now Ukraine is fighting this info war as well and doing quite successfully at it. But you may be interested to know just how pervasive Russia's justification for this war is being amplified on social media, uh, along with attacks on both you know, the messenger, the institutions, the media, for instance, and uh, the liberal government here in Canada. In other words, sowing further distrust in Canada's institutions and political leadership. And keep in mind, the target here is you. And the aim is to weaken support for Ukraine and countries supporting it against Russia. So who's behind it? How does it work? And how effective has it been? Joining me now with more is Jean-Christophe Boucher. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary. His current work focuses on applied machine learning to understand how the digital world shapes our society. He's also the lead author of a report into this very issue that was released today. Jacques-Christophe, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure. Uh, this is perhaps not surprising, but you went through many tweets, more than 6 million I read, and you found a pretty concerted effort here to misinform the Canadian public, or at least to amplify that pro-Russian narrative I was talking about. What exactly did you find? What's being done? So the purpose of the study was to, you know, measure effectively, uh, essentially, you know, if there was foreign interference or foreign influence uh, during the, the, the Ukrainian war and also where it came from. So we wanted to measure this. We, we have all these anecdotal evidence that, you know, we think Russian has like a state apparatus that, that, that shapes narratives, that produces propaganda. We wanted to see if it, it is in Canada and to what extent. So what we've done is back in November 2021, we're, we're working with partners in the government Canada and NATO and East European countries. And a lot of them at that time said, like, it would be a good time to kind of start to collect data on, on Ukraine and Russia and see whether or not there's, like, uh, information campaigns that are designed uh, from the Kremlin. And that's what we've done. We, we essentially design a scraping tool to, to, to scrape the Twitter API and uh, and that gave us access to tweets on on Russia. And we started this in November. And right now, as we speak right now, there's still, you know, my data set and my computer is collecting those by the second. And what we found is essentially, as we've collected all this digital trace data, we, we isolated Canadians' accounts. And we tried to kind of understand how Canadian accounts engage with international accounts and with each other on Russia. What we found is this. On one hand, you know, like there, about 25% of accounts in Canada are focusing uh, or promoting pro-Russian propaganda. So the good news is 75% of us are into the pro-Ukrainian or at least uh, like a different kind of um, group. What we found also, and that's the surprise part, we we thought, we expected that a lot of this propaganda would come out of Russia, would come out of sock puppets in Europe or in Latin America, uh, and some of it is true. But what we found is that a, a strong part, a big part of 
of the influence vectors, where the misinformation comes from, was in fact the United States. What we found actually is that a lot of Canadians are retweeting American influencers that are promoting pro-Russian propaganda, and that kind of is is done and retweeted in Canada, and then kind of gets into the, our Twitter sphere. So if you think in foreign interference, there's like two vectors of approach. There's the Russian-Chinese one, and that's the normal one that we would expect. The second part is a lot of this misinformation comes from the U.S., actually. We're getting infected through our certain border, uh, southern partner. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I, I found that when I was reading your report, I found it fascinating that 56% were actually U.S.-influenced profiles, 44% uh, were the others. So, in fact, a majority of them were coming from these U.S.-based uh, uh, sources, at least. Exactly. So so when we talk to our partners in government, when we talk about like foreign interference in Canada, when we talk about like what kind of foreign actors are trying to shape the narratives or influencing our conversations in Canada, uh, we now find more and more that, in fact, Canadians or the Canadian, let's say, society is more threatened by American accounts and American influence than actually other actors, uh, which speaks to kind of the policies we have to design, the kinds of ways we have to address this. It's easy to kind of criticize the Russians and the Chinese of trying to sow misinformation in Canada, and we feel good about this. And we're kind of shy at, at also noticing and blaming and shaming Americans are actually doing the same thing. And I think in Canada, we have to have a conversation of, of how much we want of American rhetoric to kind of sip in Canada. Jacques-Christophe, how did you establish, just in terms of the messaging, uh, was there a real consistency that you were seeing there that allowed you to say that this was, in fact, uh, messages that were being purposely amplified or at least being spread in a certain way that led you to understand that this was not just individuals expressing individual opinions that they had come up with by themselves? Right. So the way we kind of designed this is, is we create these social network maps. So essentially trying to understand how Twitter accounts engage with each other. So instead of trying to look at what they're saying, we're trying to look at how they engage essentially with each other, like going through their behaviors instead of what they say. And what we find is that, you know, some accounts have a tendency to interact with each other more, and that's how we kind of identify pro-Russian or anti-Russian narratives. What we find is that there's a group of influencers, you know, in the U.S., abroad, and in Canada that derives much of this you know, influence. Um, and and those influencers are mostly creating content and they're real people. What we find, for example, is that on the like American side, uh, people like Tulsi Gabbard or Candace Owens on the right of the spectrum have a massive influence and they're creating their own content and they're and those this content is promoted in Canada and amplified in Canada. Um, so it's always, we, we have a way essentially to kind of identify who creates content, and then we have a way to identify who amplifies content. And usually Twitter accounts are different. Some people actually don't retweet other people, they just create content for everything. So we have a really good sense of where the narratives come from, when it comes from, because we have a timestamp on Twitter accounts, and then we see how it goes from the United States, for example, and then it, it, it it piggybacks in Canada through, let's say, Maxime Bernier, who's going to retweet this, and then it kind of sips into the broader Twitter sphere in Canada. 
I mean, when one talks about sort of uh, information war, it always suggests that it's very well coordinated. Uh, but yeah. one gets the sense here too, and I think just reading through the different narratives that you mentioned, uh, and I want to ask, and I will ask you about that, uh, because there are a different number, a number of different messages that you saw repeated again and again and again. Uh, but but how coordinated is this? Because for instance, there must be a bit of a difference between what the Russian embassy in Ottawa is tweeting somewhat uh, and what we're seeing from some of these influencers in the U.S., although perhaps some of the, the base of the narrative is the same. Yeah. So, so, um, so like, so there was like two questions that you're asked. Like, so in terms of coordination, we know that, you know, Russian state apparatus are, are designing, you know, basic arguments and basic narratives and discourses to promote their, their, their side of the story. Right. And we know, for example, coming out of Russia, some of the things we see in Canada are actually what we're seeing in like coming out from from Russia itself, but also how they justify it in France and the U.S. and U.K. So they're not just targeting Canada with all of these allegations. They're really trying to kind of promote the same kind of structure and, and, and arguments. What's interesting on like, so how is it coordinated? And, and it's a difficult question. So So the assumption here is that influencers in the U.S., for example, there's like really three arguments on the one hand there's like useful idiots there's people that are you know misguided that think that they know more than everybody else and just basically retake uncritically russia's propaganda and 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 shape it as their own kind of views on the issue there's also people who are co-opted so we know for example that russia pays people that and and in the like in France or in the UK or Latin America to promote their own narrative. So not only does it come out of the Kremlin and Moscow, it comes in St. Petersburg, to be honest, but it comes out also from all of these, you know, dormant uh, accounts all across the world that will shape and coordinate their, their, their arguments and they're co-opted. And, and then there's like the third group of people who benefit financially from promoting these views because it gets them click and speaking engagement. And this is how I would frame some of the influencers we see in the U.S. People like Candace Owens or Tucker Carlson are not necessarily bought off by the Russians, nor do they actually uncritically think about this, but it gets them millions of dollars in speaking engagement and they benefit financially from proposing a contrarian view. And and in some ways, they benefit from it. So, so when we think of coordination, we actually see that there's a there's a bunch of actors and influencers that have different kinds of incentive, and that's what makes them efficient at promoting pro-Russian propaganda. I'm speaking with Jean-Christophe Boucher. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary and an author of a, along with others, of a report released today, just looking at uh, how much disinformation has been spread, uh, really trying to uh, amplify and sell the Kremlin's version of the war in Ukraine. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what exactly that version is, who's being targeted and what you should be on the lookout for. That's next. I'm speaking with Jean-Christophe Boucher about some really fascinating research that he's done. He's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, looked into 6.2 million tweets globally since January of this year to monitor and measure Russian influence operations on social media, specifically ones targeting us in Canada. Um, the narratives were pretty straightforward. I, I, I mentioned them off the top, but pretty much this was trying to reshape who was to blame for this, for this war, uh, more or less. Yeah, I mean, th- that's what we found. So essentially, what, like, we're not going to read 6 million tweets. That's impossible. No. <laughs> so what we've done is we've designed, 
we, we use what we, like applied machine learning. So essentially, you know, sort of artificial intelligence to read these tweets and, and cluster and, and, and classify them for us. And, and essentially, the computer gives us a bunch of, of, of trends or patterns and say, like, I see these patterns in the text. And now the researchers have to figure out what the computer found. Um, and, and what we find essentially is that there's like broadly five types of arguments systematically pushed by the Russian propaganda. The first one is what we've seen from the beginning, the assumption that the argument that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the result of, of NATO's expansion eastward, right? The, the Russians are blaming NATO countries to have like included, you know, the, the Baltic states, Poland into mm-hmm. NATO, and afraid that, you know, Ukraine will be part, so they would rather attack them right now, even though Ukraine is not part of NATO. And, and has been blocked from adjoining NATO in the past. This, and that by far is the most prevalent one. I think that's the one that convinces like the most Canadians in that respect. The second yeah. argument is one that makes an argument about like aggression. Uh, what they say is that, you know, the West is using Ukraine as a proxy to wage war against Russia. So it's NATO's fault if Russia invaded Ukraine because we're using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. And, and this is also important. The, the, the third one, which almost has not a lot of traction in Canada, mm-hmm. but it's still pushed by the Kremlin, is the notion that, you know, there's Nazis in, in Ukraine and Russia is there in a denazifying operation. Almost no one in Canada really believes this. And you actually see that people don't share a lot of this narrative. Mm-hmm. And the last ones are interesting. The last one are kind of focusing on on mistrust and institution, kind of blaming the Western world and, and kind of an anti-elite argument, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially that global elites, corporations are, are using Ukraine and are using and abusing Western governments to wage a capitalist war against Russia to benefit from the war. So they talk about the globalists, the World Economic Forum, and how the elites are actually, you know, positioning or creating a war just to benefit from it. Um, and the last one is really criticizing the Trudeau government in, in supporting Ukraine and saying that essentially, like, the Trudeau government is part of this international elite that are trying to benefit from from the war. And that's what we consistently see since, since the beginning. Uh, there's sometimes, you know, variations of how they're doing it, but essentially what the, what, you know, the Russians are doing is creating these narrative and then they push it and they try to promote it as much as possible, criticizing the West, but also trying to justify their illegal invasion of Ukraine. Those last two, of course, are ones that we've seen used for other topics as well, obviously, Absolutely. the, the anti-elitism oh, yeah. and, and, and the attacks against uh, against the government as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I only have a few minutes left. I had two more things to ask you, so I'll try and get to them quickly. Um, right. What should people be looking How effective has it been, or do you know? And, and what really should social media users be leery of? Maybe the last one is the best one uh, for right. our audience. So- uh, on the broader, like, so it is effective with the margins of the population. I think, I think this is the concerning part. What we see, for example, is people on the right, and, and especially people who vote, for example, for the People's Party or follow, you know, alt-right or far-right uh, media in Canada are most susceptible to be influenced by this information, misinformation. So even though most of us are not influenced by that, we have a portion of the population that gets more and more radicalized, more and more disinformed, and, and, and they participate in the public discourse. And that sows dissension and polarization. And I think that's the 
really troubling part. But the other part, I think, is that collectively we have to have a better conversation in Canada about foreign influence, the impact of social media in our in our lives, and and really think strongly about what kinds of norms and legal you know framework we want you know social media platforms to abide with. And and right now we have kind of been you know kind of easygoing and pushing and making the argument about free speech without really considering the damaging impact of of polarization and social media discourse on our you know democratic resiliency and we're at a point here where we have to have this conversation especially after covid after the freedom convoy i think now we have a lot of data points that shows us that there's something wrong in how we negotiate these discourses and somehow either the government but also society media needs to come together to kind of address this issue we don't do it the federal government doesn't really do it well right now and we're still kind of you know, careful in our approach, but somehow we'll have to deal with this issue uh, sooner rather than later. Jacques-Christophe Boucher, fascinating uh, study that you've done. Thank you so much for sharing the information with, uh, with myself and our listeners tonight. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.